For another perspective on this fascinating corner of cancer medicine, I met with Dr. Marcia Brose, who began our conversation by commenting on the rapidly evolving role of the medical oncologist in thyroid cancer. Prior to the last couple of years, all of the thyroid cancers were pretty much taken care of by endocrinologists because there was really nothing that medical oncologists could offer, and the endocrinologists were keeping their patients away from us to keep us from giving them toxicity without much benefit. But with the increased usage of the TKIs and the studies that have been coming out, both for the differentiated thyroid cancer as well as for medullary thyroid cancer, now all of a sudden this is becoming an oncological disease and sort of a whole new field has been born just in the last couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the natural history of what happens to these patients and where medical oncologists are becoming involved and maybe ideally where they should be involved? Well, I think that the most important thing people need to know is there are three different types of thyroid cancer. So there's anaplastic thyroid cancer, very aggressive, and that actually had been referred to oncologists in the past, very, very rare, and those patients will often get regular chemotherapy. But the other patients, which are the differentiated thyroid cancers and the medullary thyroid cancers, historically will be first worked up by endocrinologists. But if they have progressive disease, In the case of differentiated thyroid cancer, cancer that does not respond to the radioactive iodine and progress and progress, then these patients now should be referred to a medical oncologist. In the case of medullary thyroid cancer, any disease that has not been taken care of by the surgeon and has been recurrent and is now spread to other sites, they always should be referred to a medical oncologist. Because now in both of those scenarios, we have good therapies with TKIs that are coming on board, a lot of clinical trials that are open for these patients. Can you kind of provide a perspective of the various agents that have been looked at, and particularly those where we've seen encouraging data? Well, a lot of the chemotherapies that we've used historically have been studied with very dismal results. But the big excitement is really the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So as a class, these have shown great activity in both the differentiated thyroid cancer and medullary thyroid cancer arenas. So patients who have progressed and are iodine non-avid, those patients should be treated with a TKI, if possible, on a clinical trial, because remember, nothing has been FDA approved yet. So it's absolutely the first priority is clinical trials. In the off chance that people can't make it, they can't travel that far, there's no clinical trial available to them, then they've actually been recommended to get serafinib or sunitinib, which are two TKIs that have shown some good data off-label through their medical oncologists. But really, it's important since there's so few patients that these patients still be referred to clinical trials whenever possible. Now, you've done a lot of work on serafinib. And last year at ASCO, you had a really interesting presentation that looked at BRAF VG V600E, which is something that at that same ASCO, we saw some really interesting data related more to melanoma. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your work, your presentation last year. I don't know if it's been updated or anything else in terms of overall the issue about serafinib. Well, as far as the V600E mutation, this was the one that was studied in melanoma was so exciting because they now have an inhibitor that specifically targets just that mutation and that molecule BRAF. In other settings with these TKIs, they tend to be much more broad. They tend to affect many other kinases, including VEGF receptor and RET and other molecules as well. In the case of serafinib, it's not so specific for that mutation, but it does hit it, although at less strength. And what we saw last year was that the patients with the BRAF mutation 
We expected to do much worse given their clinical history and what we knew about patients who had that mutation. What we were surprised to find out is they did as well as the non-mutation carriers, if not better. And so it's not clear at this point how that mutation is going to play into the actual treatment paradigm for these patients. I will say that those BRAF inhibitors may have an activity for those patients at some point in their treatment for sure, but it's too early to tell. At this point, the nice thing about serafinib is that it seems to treat both the mutation carriers and the non-mutation carriers very well. And I've been a big fan of waterfall plots since they started coming out pretty recently. And what I've seen on serafinib is pretty impressive. It looks like most of the tumors shrink down. They really do. And if you take the patients who have differentiated thyroid cancer as opposed to the poorly differentiated variety, virtually all of them will have some sort of response. Now, not maybe 30% or greater, which is what we usually call a partial response officially, but they may shrink anywhere from 10 to up to 80%. The question, I think, clinically is not just how much do they shrink, which is always very exciting, and probably it's most important to people who have symptoms. So how much it shrinks is going to affect them the most. But what's more important to the majority of patients we treat is really how long does that last? It doesn't matter to me whether they shrink 10 or 20% or 80% if they're not having symptoms. What matters to me is how long do they maintain it and how long do they go without requiring additional therapies of radiation or surgeries for lesions that are progressing in bad spots. What's the answer? Well, the phase two data showed that for those patients the median time without progressing was between 18 and 20 months. We actually have an updated paper that will be coming out in the next few months that will report on the full number of 55 patients that we studied in that first trial, the one that we reported early because the data was so significant. And that will actually give us the final number, but it really is up there. We're talking a good you know, 18 months to 20 months, which these patients were already progressing, and some of them were likely to get into trouble earlier. You know, when you look across oncology, that certainly is a longer progression-free survival than we often see in advanced disease. Has that been seen with other agents in thyroid cancer, or does this relate specific to serafinib? It's actually been seen in the TKIs in general, although to a lesser extent. So some of the other TKIs like sunitinib, pazopinib have also shown a period of progression-free survival, not always as good as 18 to 20 months, but they may be 6 to 12 months, for instance. So we're certainly getting activity that's much better than other medical oncology areas. The other thing I want to point out is that for medical oncologists who have treated patients with TKIs for other cancers, one of the things that's come up for the thyroid patients is because they do so well for so long we actually have a much higher need to make sure we manage the toxicities. So in other words, there was an editorial that came out at one point that said that the toxicity kept on increasing. But if you looked at the person who wrote that study, they were studying patients who weren't on therapy longer than six months. And the reality is actually that the toxicities start to resolve or get much better after about six months. But then there are some longer-term toxicities that we need to manage very well, particularly diarrhea and things like that, that are really a problem with the thyroid patients because they're on serafinib a lot longer than, say, the other patients, melanoma patients or renal cell patients who have been treated in the past. You know, also, I guess, HCC. And in all those, you hear about problems in terms of side effects, hand-foot syndrome. What's the dose and schedule used with thyroid cancer? Well, that's another beautiful thing. So we don't actually have to combine it with chemotherapy. We're talking about single agent. 
So my approach, and I think it's important, is to treat everybody starting at the 400 milligrams twice a day. That's the starting dose. There are patients who won't be able to tolerate it so well. And in the clinical trials, we actually have a very clear algorithm for how we do dose reductions or dose holidays. And in the future, I think most patients will be between three tablets a day and four tablets a day, which is between 600 milligrams and 800 milligrams total dose daily. I think that in the few patients that I've had to dose reduce, if they get much lower than that, we can get into troubles of them progressing because the dose gets too low. Again, why it's so important to manage the toxicities well. Now, when you say sort of things get better after six months, do you think there's actually some kind of tachyphylaxis or it's just the clinical management where the patients get better? I think it's probably a combination of both, but I do think that the body does acclimate somewhat. The skin does seem to get much better at managing the toxicity. That's not to say patients won't still have hand-foot syndrome, but they will be able to manage it. And at that point, instead of it being the blistering and peeling, it usually is just callus formation. And that can be managed very well with a podiatrist who does shavings of those calluses on a regular basis. So that pain can go away. They'll know to treat it with a little bit of ibuprofen, which works great. And then the thing that becomes the long-term, the one toxicity that's more of a long-term issue, has more to do with the GI and diarrhea. Again, patients learn how to manage their diet better, avoid foods that are going to trigger that. And if they need to, they know how to take Imodium and other agents to keep it in control. Could you sort of maybe very briefly summarize, you mentioned that there are these algorithms that are developed, but just sort of basically, you know, what you do for what? Well, that's a good question. We're actually going to write a paper to summarize this because I do think there's a need for this information. So for hand-foot syndrome, we use ibuprofen for pain. In the first couple of months, we monitor it carefully. If patients have just a little bit of it or it's painful, we just sort of manage the pain and we follow them. If they start to have trouble that's more involved than that, then we recommend patients may have a couple of dose holidays, especially if they're not on study. I would often say to patients, take three days off and then go back on. They don't stay off for very long. It's really remarkable that only a few days off can be enough sometimes to heal, maybe five days, and then they can sometimes go back to that full dose and be quite fine. If that happens two or three times and they keep on coming up with a really pretty severe pain where they don't want to get up and walk on their feet because they hurt so much, then in those cases we will do a dose reduction down to three-quarters dose and try to maintain them on that without going much further if at all possible. So that's the hand-foot syndrome. You know, the rash, as it turns out, we don't even treat because it's this thing that comes for a few weeks and then it goes away. Most of the times it doesn't itch, it doesn't bother patients. So even if they're very red in the face, it comes and it goes and doesn't require treatment. So those are two of the main ones. Fatigue is another one which is just really managed expectantly. Patients are really taught to just take it a little easy during the first month. Almost always around the fifth or sixth month, they'll say, oh, I'm starting to feel like myself again. You know, I started to get my energy back, and I will have done nothing. So they did that on their own. The one interesting thing I've come up with, and this is a little bit of some voodoo that we do at Penn that we developed, which has to do with weight loss. So weight loss can be pretty significant on these agents, and often patients will drop a 10 or 15 pounds. My concern is, is that when patients drop the weight, it's usually muscle wasting. And especially in older patients, that can be a problem. So if I know patients are going to be on treatment, especially if they're elderly, I really request that they go and try to go to a gym and get into a weight building exercises, not aerobics, but actual muscle mass building. And if they do that, they can really avoid some of the weight loss and the fatigue seems to go with that weight loss. So it's symptomatically a big improvement. And if they are having trouble with fatigue and I force them out the door to the gym, it's amazing within a month how much better they'll feel. 
Now, this agent is known or thought to be a, quote, multi-kinase inhibitor, you know, hitting a number of targets. What are the targets and what's thought to be the most important one in terms of thyroid cancer? I think that the most important one for this agent as well as other ones is probably the inhibition of the VEGF receptor. Because by blocking off the vessels that go to these tumors, they're very, very vascular tumors. That's probably where the major mechanism is being exerted. There's also inhibition of BRAF. As I said, we haven't really figured out if that's going to play a role yet. Most importantly, we see that patients do as well with or without that mutation, but it blocks both the normal and the mutated form. And then it also blocks RET, which is another kinase that has activity in thyroid cancer. You mentioned VEGF. Has bevacizumab or other anti-angiogenic agents been looked at in this disease? So other antiangiogenics such as other TKIs, not bevacizumab as it turns out, but sunitinib, pizopinib, metesinib, there have been several of them that have been tried and actually shown to have some activity. The only tyrosine kinase inhibitor that did not show activity was gefitinib, which is an EGFR inhibitor. So that's sort of interesting because, of course, that differentiates it from things like lung cancer. So that's the only one that really did not show any kind of benefit. But most of the ones that are hitting VEGF receptors show some activity, maybe differ a little bit in how long the progression-free survival is, but have definitely shown some activity. And what about bevacizumab? I don't believe it's been studied, interestingly enough. I mean, there have not been studies that I'm aware of that have been published on bevacizumab. Now, another TKI I wanted to ask you about, and actually a presentation at ASCO by Sam Wells looked at vandetinib. We've heard about this agent in lung cancer and I think other tumors. What do we know about it in medullary thyroid cancer? Well, vendetinib actually is at a point where it actually completed a phase three trial for medullary thyroid cancer. So this was studied particularly because vendetinib inhibits RET. And vendetinib has been studied in that context, and the phase three data is now complete, and that was what was being presented by Sam Wells. And it shows very, very good activity, both in response as well as progression-free survival for those patients. Medullary thyroid cancer, as opposed to differentiated thyroid cancer, is more aggressive. So the progression-free survival periods of 18 months or longer will not necessarily be achieved by the agents in medullary thyroid cancer. I can't remember exactly what the progression-free survival was, but I think it was on the order of a year. And that is pretty significant for medullary thyroid cancer, which is very aggressive. Now, have you had any patients on this agent? I actually haven't. I've inherited a few patients from Sam who have been treated with it in the past and have done well for a good year or so on that agent. And they've tolerated it actually quite well, and I think it's had an activity for them. What I remember from lung cancer, this blocks both EGFR as well as VEGF or some kind of angiogenic. It's a a mixed inhibitor. What's thought to be the important mechanism in medullary? It's probably the VEGF receptor is probably one of the major ones. So where are we right now in terms of the algorithm of medullary cancer? And do you think that vandetinib at some point is going to be part of that? I think that vandetinib stands to be part of that very soon. I think that with that trial finished, we may actually hear about it going to the FDA in the near future, and we might get some activity on that. In the meantime, sunitinib and serafinib are also active in medullary thyroid cancer, and they also can be used. In fact, there was data on sunitinib also presented at ASCO showing that it was significantly active in medullary thyroid cancer. That was from the University of Chicago group, Ezra Cohen's group. So I think that we have now probably several TKIs. As far as an algorithm goes, I think whichever one gets FDA approval will be the first-line therapy for sure. But the nice thing is having two or three that are active means that when one stops working, you can try 
try the patients on additional treatments, and they may respond to sequential therapy with other agents. Any way to sort of look at this indirectly and figure out which one might have a better toxicity benefit ratio? We don't have any direct comparison, and I think it's a little difficult to tell because I think that without a head-to-head, it's really going to be hard to tell, especially because every trial is going to have a different algorithm for how to manage the toxicities, which may or may not work well. I think that patients will tell us how well they do and how well they tolerate it. I think vendetinib is very well tolerated, actually. And the fact that patients remain on it even when they've had some progression because it's probably helping some speaks to the fact that patients feel like they're tolerating it pretty well. If they thought it wasn't working and they felt rotten, I think that they would have stopped the therapy much quicker. But I don't think that we're going to really know which one's better or which one's worse for quite some time. Just experientially, my experience with sunitinib seems to be that that seems to be a less well-tolerated TKI. My patients get really wiped out on it and really end up just sort of, their tumors might respond or stop growing for a few months, but they're not really doing anything because they can't really do much. They're so tired. So that one, I will say that there is some toxicity that gives it less appeal for us. I mean, no, particularly in renal cell, the issue of fatigue and sunitinib, I hear a lot about. And also they bring up the issue of thyroid function Is that also an issue with thyroid cancer? Ironically, no, because what happens is is the patients are already on thyroid replacement. Right. What is interesting and will be important for medical oncologists who eventually end up treating thyroid cancer to know is that the TKIs do seem to affect the response to the thyroid hormone. And in thyroid cancer, TSH is a growth hormone for the disease. So what you like to do is keep their thyroid hormone level high enough so that their TSH level is suppressed. The trick is is that they may come in on a dose that's been stable for 10 years, but once they start on the TKIs, what ends up happening is slowly their TSH level starts to drift up. And so a medical oncologist needs to be aware of that, work with the endocrinologist that's working with the patient and make sure to titrate that thyroid hormone dose so that they manage to keep the TSH suppressed adequately. And we like to target less than 0.1%. And in patients who are having symptoms from the thyroid hormone, maybe less than 0.5, but we really want to keep it down. No, in terms of the toxicity profiles, you know, we're kind of used to hearing about hypertension with, you know, anti-VEGF agents, but also, you know, diarrhea and rash with EGFR agents. What's been seen with these two, particularly with Vandetna being sort of a combined EGFR and VEGF inhibitor? Well, actually, it's a little tricky. So first for hypertension, that seems to be prevalent in all of the TKIs, and they all need to have that treated. And we even recommend patients get monitored at least weekly in the first few months that they're on therapy because it can really shoot up. Treatment for that is usually a calcium channel blocker. If they're not on one, it just seems to be the class of hypertensive agent that works the best for that side effect. As far as the diarrhea, I want to caution people when they're looking at the vendetinib data because it's a little tricky. Diarrhea is caused by calcitonin, elevated calcitonin, and medullary patients, when they come in, will often have very, very bad diarrhea that may or may not even be controllable, and they'll be on very high doses of Imodium or Sandostatin and things like that. Very often in these agents, when you start to treat them, the molecular marker, in this case the calcitonin, will actually precipitously drop probably out of proportion to the amount that the tumor is responding because there's actually direct effect of the TKI on calcitonin production. So what may happen in a medullary patient is that the diarrhea goes away initially because you've actually gotten a good blockade on that. But then later on, either because the calcitonin can rise, not necessarily reflecting progression, but just because it can start to come back for reasons we don't know, 
or just the diarrhea related to vendetinib, both of those things together can cause the diarrhea to come back. And it's probably a dual cause, right? Both the calcitonin and due to the TKI. In the vendetinib data, I would caution people a little bit because one of the things that they point out is the use of opioids for pain. Remember that many of these patients with diarrhea will be treated with opioids for the diarrhea. So I would be very careful with that interpretation about their pain use because it also might be related. The opioid levels will also be related many times to the amount of diarrhea they're having. It looks like one way or the other, the patients seem to do pretty well on the vandetinib. They reported 12% had to discontinue due to an adverse event as opposed to 3% in the placebo. So is that also kind of the message you've gotten that you know most patients tolerate it pretty well? Yes, that's definitely the data that we've had. And also I see that 45% of patients had a rash. Again, I'm thinking EGFR versus 11%. Is this an EGFR-like rash? I think so. I mean, I think that it's not so much EGFR, though. I think, I mean, the VEGF receptors will also do that, even ones that don't affect EGFR. So, I mean, we get rashes from all the TKIs, as it turns out, and they're very common. They often happen in the first month, and they come and they go. And there's nothing, I saw the pictures from the rashes from vendetinib, and I can't differentiate them from what you would see with the VEGF receptor inhibitors. But it does seem to be very well tolerated and transient. What other agents are being looked at in thyroid cancer that look encouraging? I'm sure there are a lot of them that are being studied, but any that, you know, maybe look like they might be coming online in the next couple of years? I think at this time, I think serafinib is the one that's farthest along in development. It's right now in a phase three study. There are a couple of inhibitors that are PGF inhibitors that they were doing a phase two study in. There's several different agents that have shown activity in phase two. You mentioned the phase three study of serafinib. What is the actual design and eligibility of the study? Well, patients who have failed to respond to radioactive iodine, either they've gotten it several times and progressed anyway, or maybe their tumors never took up radioactive iodine with differentiated thyroid cancers are eligible for that phase three. They also have to show that they're progressing because in thyroid cancer, you might have patients who have stayed stable for many years. So they actually have to show progression by resist criteria in the year and a half before they go on study. But those patients who are doing well and otherwise healthy are eligible. Now, interestingly, the design of the study, which is required for FDA, is to also do a placebo arm, just like the vendetinib trial. And all patients will actually be randomized to one or the other in a one-to-one fashion. The one thing that was included in this, given that we do know that there's some activity from the phase two data, not just mine, but also that from several other sites, is that there's allowed to be a crossover. So virtually everybody on that study will get the serafinib. Some will get it at the onset, and some of them will get it if any of their lesions progress and we find out that they're on placebo. In addition to developing new agents, is there any interest or any studies looking at combined agents? Again, I see this being tried out in other tumors, including renal cell. Any interest in terms of thyroid? Well, I think that when we start looking at second line, this is something that we're working on very hard at Penn, is looking at what do we do when people start progressing on serafinib alone. Until now, we always had sutent or sunitinib as a second line therapy because we can't get any other agents as far as off-label. And as I said, the responses have been somewhat disappointing because patients may have progression-free survival for another six months but feel pretty sick while they're on the agent. 
So then we start looking at what else can we do, and we can do a couple of things. We can either take the tact of trying different agents, so possibly looking into other inhibitors, looking at, say, the exalexis drug that has a MET-RET type of tyrosine kinase inhibition, and those pathways are known in other cancers like lung cancer to be responsible for basically escaping from prior TKI therapy. And so there's reason to go and shift to start to block other pathways. Then the other way you can do is you can do combination. So a study that we're doing at Penn is for patients who have progressed. We're going to be trying to keep them on serafinib and add in a second agent called RAD001, which is mTOR inhibitor. And the logic for that is interesting. It's unusual that you would keep the prior agent on board. So it's a somewhat of a unique trial. But our experience is, is that when we see patients progressing, part of their lesions will be progressing, and then the other ones will have been remaining stable. And we know that if we stop serafinib altogether, that large amount of disease that was stable will start to grow. So in other words, they'll progress more off of the serafinib. So for the design of this trial, what we do is we continue them on serafinib and we add in an mTOR inhibitor. And we're going to be looking to see whether or not we can start to capture some of those patients who are progressing. I think that for the medical oncologist, it's most important to realize that some patients will remain asymptomatic and with stable disease, sometimes for years. And an oncologist can't be too excited to go in with these TKIs because they do have toxicities and that it will be very important to kind of create an algorithm where you say, okay, we would definitely wait until patients are clearly progressing because otherwise what's going to happen is a lot of patients will end up getting exposed to these agents probably before they need it. And I worry that they'll develop resistance earlier than they would otherwise. And a medical oncologist needs to know of the sort of the general pace of this disease, which is that there may be a stable period. Some patients will be stable for up to 20 years before they actually start to develop progression, not unlike something like CML. Other patients, especially some of the subtypes, more poorly differentiated, Herthel cell patients, those patients are the ones that come to me who were diagnosed in the last five years and have needed more therapy. So there's quite a heterogeneity in the type of patients we see, and I think it's important to patients that the oncologists really know the difference between the two. Let's talk about your cases, if you can just present the first one. Okay, so this is an example of a patient that was diagnosed in 1989. So this really sort of emphasizes that last point I just made. And he was found to have papillary thyroid cancer, and he really did quite well for quite a long time, had another recurrence a couple of years later in the 90s, had surgery to remove the lymph nodes in his neck, and then did again well until 2004. So he had these long periods between any evidence of disease, about six years. And when he had recurrences, they always happened in his neck. How old was he? This gentleman was 67 years old when I met him in 2006. So when he first got diagnosed, he was in his 40s. And during all this time as he was being managed, was he pretty functional, working, et cetera? Oh, totally functional, 100%. You wouldn't know he had cancer by any means. What was his state of mind when you met him? Well, he actually was pretty anxious at that point because by the time I met him, he'd had several recurrences. And the last ones that happened in 2006 showed that now the disease had spread to his lungs. And what's not unusual with these patients is they have a hard time wrapping their minds around it when they've been asymptomatic for years and then all of a sudden find out that they've got metastasis to their lungs and now their life is being threatened by the disease that, you know, for the last 20 years was not really a big problem. So interestingly, when he first came to me, it was when the data serafinib wasn't really mature at all. We were just starting the trial. He heard about the toxicities, and he declined to go on the treatment. He was just feeling too well and decided, I don't want to have the toxicities. 
But one of the things that we know from the data from Sloan Kettering is once patients stop taking up iodine, which we definitely knew was the case for this patient, their overall survival is an average of two and a half to three and a half years. And it wasn't a surprise then over the next year, he ended up with four different interventional pulmonary procedures for bleeding from metastasis to his bronchus. So after he had kind of gotten beaten up now by having to undergo multiple procedures and a chronic cough related to these lesions, he decided to go on the serafinib trial. That was in 2006. And three and a half years later, he's managed to keep his disease stable for that whole time. Now, I will say he's had issues in the meantime with weight loss and things like that, and he's had to work very hard to maintain his energy level. The first six months, as I caution all my patients, was rough, but he's been thrilled that actually his medical condition due to his thyroid cancer has remained stable. And so we really were able to put a break on this disease, and that was three and a half years ago, where his overall survival now would be expected to be coming into question. Just to backtrack a little bit, though, these patients in this man get endobronchial lesions that bleed? They can. They can. Not all, but some do. And maybe it's as little as 10%. He happened to be one of the folks who did. Two rare things that happen is, one, they can get an endobronchial lesion that can bleed. And then another rare thing that can happen is if they get a lesion that's studying on the pleura, some patients can end up actually with significant pleural effusions. And the sad thing is, in the two or three cases of that that I've seen, these patients were not able to be pleurodesed. In other words, they ended up continually reaccumulating, and then they ended up with a pleurex catheter. Another patient, it wasn't one of the cases I was going to present to you, but what's interesting is when he went on serafinib, he came to me after having had multiple taps and eventually a pleurex catheter put in. He drains his effusion two or three times every week and has now been stable for a year and a half. So that's pretty significant for a guy who has a pleurex catheter in for metastatic disease and that he's stable and active and playing golf in spite of that. Hmm. And you think this is just straightforward tumor cells in the pleura or is there some Actually, vascular thing? Or? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. We had a patient who underwent a VATS and the video showed us that it was definitely studying of the tumor, but what was interesting is, is that there was also clear evidence of responding tumor. So I don't know. I mean, some people come in with effusions before they ever have serafinib, so it's not due to the response per se. It's due to having tumor and protein, I'm sure, just in that space. But it's interesting because we've actually seen a patient on serafinib where it was clearly responding as well. Hmm, fascinating. It is. This man who's been on for three and a half years, can you kind of track what happened to him side effects wise and how you managed it? Sure. The first thing he had was a rash and the hand foot syndrome. And that actually lasted for him for about six months. Interestingly, he has not had the problem with callus formation since then. And so once it subsided around six or eight months, his sensitivity in his hands and feet actually went away. He's had some problems with diarrhea that the Imodium has been very, very effective taking care of. He actually, at 67 and was not so active, had a lot more problem with the weight loss. And that's been a much more significant issue for him. And so we got him into physical therapy, and that made a huge difference for him as far as long-term how he did. And with the exercise, he brought back both some weight as well as his energy came back up. So he's done fairly well from that perspective. That's interesting. So was, again, this sort of weight-bearing exercise to increase the muscle mass? Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it's amazing because people sort of age. If I look at them and we're not doing this kind of thing, they look like they're kind of aging in front of me as they lose weight. 
And it's remarkable what a change in just one month going to the gym, all of a sudden they look like five years younger just in one month. It's phenomenal the change just from working out and getting their bodies going again. And then that helps them. Interestingly, I've had patients who've even said that it's helped them with the diarrhea. Why that would be, I have no idea whatsoever, but it does seem to help them with their nutrition. I got to say, it really sounds unusual slash strange, almost unbelievable. I've never heard of that before, but the way you're describing it, I just wonder what the physiology is. Well, I think that there might be some effect of the inhibition of the vessels to muscle mass, just Hmm. in general. Hmm. You know, there are a couple of little quirky side effects that happen at much rarer rate. But for instance, some patients can get problems with double vision or hoarse voice. These are muscles that are very, very small you know, your extraocular muscles or your voice muscles. And it's interesting that I find that these actually can be affected by the serafinib, not to the point where they're, you know, a big problem. But we had one patient actually who ended up with, when she got tired, not all the time, but when she got tired at the end of the day, she didn't track very well. She would take a nap and she was fine. So it's an unusual thing. I do think that the weight bearing helps a lot. I will say the other thing I do for patients with significant weight loss, the ones who've really started to lose 15 to 20%, those patients do get put on megase. And we do try to address that pretty aggressively from that standpoint as well. Megase. You know, I don't know whether it's just that I haven't asked, but I mean, we've done tons of renal cell programs and HCC programs. I've never heard anybody mention that about serafinib. Well, for a couple of reasons, there are renal cell patients who are on for a long time, but still their long is our short. Absolutely. And plus they're getting it second or third line. Second or third line. And many of them may or may not succumb to their disease in a relatively short period. But remember, I have patients on this three and a half to four years And that muscle wasting is really significant. And sometimes I won't even see it being a major player until a year out. But on patients who are elderly or on the older side and they don't have a lot of muscle mass to start with, I'll get them going from day one, and it makes a big difference for how well they tolerate it. How about your other patient? So in contrast, I had a 35-year-old woman with an aggressive, poorly differentiated thyroid cancer, first diagnosed in 2000. So she had multiple rounds of radioactive iodine, not unlike other patients, but kept on recurring in her neck. And then the last time she recurred in her neck, she had really, really bad diffuse lesions throughout her lungs. looked like it was replacing almost 50% of her lungs. By the time I saw her, she was actually symptomatic, was having dyspnea on exertion and a little bit of shortness of breath, not so much sitting down, but really was limiting her activity at that point. The sad part was she was a young mom too, which is of course a big issue. And at that point, at least for her recurrent neck disease, she was looking at a possible laryngectomy. Now, given that she also had diffuse disease in her lungs, and I was going to be treating with serafinib and had seen these good responses, in discussion with the head and neck surgeon, we decided to proceed first with the serafinib. And happily for her, her disease in her neck responded just as much as her disease in her lungs, and it was no longer an issue, her progression in her neck. The part of it that's sad, of course, is that about two and a half years later, the serafinib stopped working. She ended up with some studying around her heart and ended up succumbing rapidly to her disease, which was very unfortunate because of the site that it was recurring, which was in the pericardial space that was really difficult to manage. But what was significant, I think, about this is this is a woman who, for the last two years of her life, would have had a laryngectomy and not had her voice with her toddler that was growing up, and her quality of life for her last two years was significantly better. Can I say her overall survival was different? You know, it's hard to say. She was rapidly progressing when I saw her two years earlier. It's hard for me to imagine that she would have lasted two years without the serafinib. But between that and also the quality of life for these patients, when they're not progressing, not having to go through 
surgeries, for bone mats or radiation for various sites of disease, it's a big deal. And in this person's, I mean, it made a huge difference that she had her voice for her last two years. And I guess theoretically, she might have been eligible for this trial. You're starting looking at continuing serafinib and adding in everolimus. And I'm thinking about the side effects profiles of both of those. It seems like they're kind of enough different that maybe we would be optimistic this would be well tolerated, or maybe you already know that. Well, so I'll say with her, we just didn't have enough time to even try another thing, unfortunately. We have had a couple of patients where we're starting to look at that, and we think that there might be some activity. The question, I think, is really, as far as the side effects go, it's another beauty of that design where we have patients who are already on serafinib, and they're adding in RAD001. And the interesting thing about that is we do know that if you start those two agents together, you actually have to start both of them at half dose. So you would normally start very low for both. The reason is, is that the toxicities are overlapping enough, especially with the hand-foot syndrome, that it's very severe. But in our case, we have an interesting scenario because patients have already acclimated many times to the serafinib, and now they're going to get the RAD001 added in. And so we're really looking forward to seeing whether or not that's going to you know, bring back the hand-foot syndrome that is now under control or whether or not it will be much more manageable. It remains to be seen. When I think about the mTOR inhibitors and everolimus, I think about metabolic things and interstitial pneumonitis. Those things happen the same in thyroid as they do in other tumors? Well, we haven't seen this agent in thyroid tumors, so we really don't know yet. So we don't even have a single agent activity with an mTOR inhibitor? No, we don't. We haven't had any studies for that yet. Seems like there is a lot of interest in combining some kind of anti-angiogenic and an mTOR inhibitor, even BEV in other tumors. Well, some of the data that we provided, I think, in the last year or so at ASCO showed that we've actually taken lesions out of patients at the time of progression and have seen that the activity of the AKT mTOR pathway is very, very increased in the areas where it looks like the progression is happening. So for that reason and the fact that AKT pathway signaling is very important in thyroid cancer, it's just known that that's a very important pathway. There's a real push both from preclinical and our clinical data to combine those two. But we haven't had any single agent studies of an mTOR inhibitor in thyroid cancer at this point. Fascinating. Anything else you want to say about that second patient? No, I think it was an unfortunate outcome, but I think that we really did help her quite a bit by giving her serafinib. I would hope now to have other agents for patients who progress. Most patients don't progress that rapidly. That's really an unusual case. I would say one or two out of my 100 have been like that. So I really think that's an unusual way to progress. And most of my patients at the time of progression will have ample time to try second and third line therapies. And that's what we're focusing on now.